This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome, movie lovers, back for our first anatomy of 2018. And we're talking about all the money in the world, the John Paul Getty kidnapping story. So stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We have the one and only Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. And I'm Phil Svitek. And missing in action today is Dimitri Panos. Yes. But nonetheless, we carry on. Hopefully, we'll find him by the end, just like they found John Paul Getty III. Right, right. Hopefully, we did with both ears. With both ears. <laughs> Uh, anyway, this movie, so much to discuss. A lot, yeah. We're going to try to break it down in all all the various forms that we can. We're going to start with story first, because I do think the movie deserves that. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to talk about the production in all aspects, both before and after, let's call it. Uh, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, a little teaser Kevin Spacey was recast. He was cast as John Paul Getty, yep. but then recast um, as Christopher Plummer. Yeah. So. And that was really quick. And that's not the only controversy of this movie. No, there was a lot, a so, lot surrounding this film. So, so much to talk about. But as we always do before we get into all of that, overall impressions of this movie. Okay, so I watched this film... And admittedly, I'm young. I I know of uh, Getty, but I didn't really know his personal story because I, I have been to the Getty Museum, so I knew who he, who he was, but not his family history or anything that's really happened in his life. And it was interesting to see just how authoritative he was and um, well-respected by his peers and um, how much of a, a mogul he was. Um, but not really, like, knowing his character just as a person, too. And I found that actually very interesting in how people treated him and how he treated others. Yeah. I saw this movie in France, of all things. I just <laughs> thought I'd mention that. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I thought it was... It, it's a marvel in filmmaking as we unravel how it really got made. I thought the fact that they could basically reshoot... and. At least, I, I don't know the percentage of the movie, but let's say 30%, maybe. Maybe that's high, maybe that's low. And still pull it off and make a great movie is fantastic. Yeah. I really love Ridley Scott. The dude is 80 years old, still going strong. Able, this year he's made two movies in a single year. That's insane. Last time he did that was in 2001. Most directors make like, if they're lucky, right? If they're mm-hmm. lucky, they make like a movie every three to five years. Yeah. Uh, so kudos are there. However, I feel for whatever reason, I thought it was interesting and there's, there's enough to sink my teeth into in terms of ideology, in terms of action and so forth. But there's just, I don't know how to describe it, a final element that's missing that makes it from good slash great into fantastic and really memorable. 
And I, re- I don't know what it is. I think Ridley's done some amazing movies, but whether it was, um, what was the Denzel Washington one? I'm blanking on that. Um, American Gangster. Nah. That one, same thing. Good slash great, but not fantastic. And all these elements are there. And maybe as we discuss it, it'll come to me. But that's what I hope of these movies. And I thought it was great, just not fantastic. Yeah, I mean, and we'll definitely get into it. I think the story was great. The visuals are great and the pacing and all the technical aspects of this film were, I think, really um, well done. I think it was some of the characters I didn't like that really just made me physically just irk watching this. Like, And I think that hit me why maybe I didn't love this film. It's a good film. I didn't love it, though, and I think it was because some of the characters. For me, I I really like what Christopher Plummer brought to Getty. And, in fact, I thought the most telling thing of all was when he said, you know, I tried to write a book once. I called it How to Stay Rich. The editors tried to change it How to Become Rich, and I didn't agree with that. And once you go through the movie and you see the ending, that makes sense. Uh, by the way, forewarning as we get into this, I usually say it at the top. I guess I forgot. Got to get in my anatomy routine. It's been a while. <laughs> a, yes. spoilers. B, if you want to follow along, we have our rundown in the, in the little description box so you can download the PDF and follow along. Also, we encourage you guys to comment as well with your thoughts and opinions. You have been doing so wonderfully. Anyway, the point being that that to me was the real story of him wanting to stay rich and the fact that he just refused to spend money unless it was for investment. Mm -hmm. Or just personal things that he wanted. But they were investments. Like art and all that. That's, quote, an investment. Cars could technically be an investment. Right. Um, I thought it was interesting, and you kind of get the sense of his mentality and how he goes about different situations and how he looks at situations and how he deals with them. Um, I, I think it's a good, but it, it was good, but it was a very dark reflection on who he is and uh, and how he came to be so successful and financially successful. Yeah, that's the part I wish I got a little more into his mind of him as an actual businessman. But one of one of the very early on things for me that took him from just this evil, greedy, sort of one-dimensional character was when he – at first when he refuses to pay, you're like, yeah, what is – that, that amount of money, what is that really to you? It's pennies. Yeah. Chump change. <laughs> but then you see all the letters from everyone just being like, we're the kidnappers, we're the kidnappers. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, I get it. Yeah. Okay. He's there, there. There's inner workings there that justify not just giving randomly money to whoever. Right, and there was also a really good line where uh, I, I think it goes along the lines of you know if I gave one cent for every grandchild that went uh, has gone missing, I'd have fourteen grandkids or gone missing. And I'm like, oh, that's also pretty true. If he just gave money to anyone, people are just going to know that hey, he's willing to pay. People are going to constantly steal and abduct his grandkids. And not even just the grandkids. Kids. Yeah. And just, anyone else. Just family members in general. If he gives them any ounce of, um, you know. Leeway. Leeway. Yeah. And just any money. Yeah. So I think that that to me was sort of 
one of the lesser themes of the movie. Like, it tried to hit it, but it didn't hit it in the way that I think the weight of it they were trying to really tell. How do you actually keep your money? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that's an interesting lesson. Maybe I'm just fascinated by myself, but the fact everyone, when I when I talk to people, whether lower class or middle class, it's always, how do I become rich? And you know, you can look at Mayweather. The dude on a fight makes 160 million dollars. I know, but then he blows it all away in like the next two weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you can't keep your money, what's the point? How do you? Yeah, and but that makes sense from the so-called lower middle class. They're always reaching up and trying to get to the echelon um, tier. Uh, but when you're already there, how you maintain your status. That's that's the interesting thing. And and I liked how we kind of got an idea of how Getty stayed financially rich. But he still didn't tell the audience exactly how he did it. Yeah. And I like that. And he kept that mystery within him. Now, as far as what you talked about, not really knowing the backstory, um, we live in Los Angeles. And so we are blessed to have the Getty Center here. Um, it's it's a wonderful place in the sense that there is a lot, it's a museum. It's got all the artwork and so forth. Um, they've obviously commercialized it to a degree too. There's great restaurants and mm-hmm. a great view, but overall the the museum is what people go for. Um, my sort of entry into it as soon as like the I didn't, I didn't know any real context going into this movie. Obviously, I did not live through it, nor did you, uh, Dimitri. Has. <laughs> has so it's unfortunate to not have him but nonetheless you know my sort of only entry point as soon as i the movie opened up was oh i remember getty gas stations i grew mm. up with a lot of getty gas stations i could see oh okay yeah that makes sense okay are they big i'd imagine they're bigger in europe i mean they are here but not as uh, they had them on the we had them in connecticut they're all over connecticut okay see we did not have them in the midwest where i come from <laughs> No offense, your town's the world's smallest town, so you didn't have a lot of things. It's very, very true. So, anywho. Um, but yeah, let, let's, I guess, take a quick step back and give context to all of this. Um, you want to talk about the development and kick us off that way? Yeah, so in March, uh, it Ridley Scott was final, finalizing plans to direct this film with um, David Scarpa, who scripted it, and about this, and, you know, it was March of... Last year, Last 2017. Year. So, I mean, Ridley's got a humongous turnaround. Like, how fast is that? And uh, so March of 2017, um, and th- that's when the ball started rolling. And it actually had a, a premiere at the AFI Fest, which is American Film Institution, which is, you know, known for having amazing actors, amazing directors, uh, alumni coming from that institution. But uh, then it was withdrawn because of all the things that we will get into. Um, but overall, I'm just fascinated by the fact. Originally, uh, the primary budget of about forty million obviously grows given uh, the context of having to do more reshoots and other stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's just that. We're not talking about promotion, which basically you have to scrap your entire promotion set and yeah. go go from scratch and just like that you ideally you like to plan your promotion have things be ready a couple of weeks in advance this was all ready and then boom uh kevin spacey allegations come out and you have to redo everything and but but they're finding their way um 
and whatnot. And it is overall based on the 1995 book um, titled Painfully Rich, The Outrageous Fortune and Misfortunes of the Heirs of J. Paul Getty. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. One of the things I look sort of back on, to me, Princess Diana comes to mind, this comes to mind, and a couple of other uh, type of stories, uh, even like I, Tanya this year with um, Tanya Harding. Mm-hmm. Where essentially we had celebrity gossip without having the TMZs, the E News, the 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 Entertainment Tonight's of the world, right? And so imagine how big it must have been when mainstream news, not gossip news, picking up stories like this of of a kidnapping worldwide, right? And we saw it was broadcasted on television all over newspapers. I mean, this this was back in the hard copy days where. They didn't have the internet. So this was a humongous story when the whole world knew about it. Um, I, I think it's fascinating because it, it also just shows uh, they had to work so fast in a, an environment that was naturally more obsolete than it is now. It was a slower way to get the news. It was, and, and obviously it's not something you prepare for at all. Especially because no. it didn't really exist. Like that sort of sens- sensationalized news at, at that sort of pace. And in a sense, too, one of the things I was thinking about, whether from Gail's perspective or otherwise, you know, as you're watching this stuff on TV and they're putting out information, you start to wonder, wait, ha- did, is this information actually true? How do they get it? Should I know this information? Will I help my cause? Or they just is this, quote, fake news, as we like to say in twenty. 20- 18. Mm-hmm. Right. And, I mean, they didn't have... This would be the trending topic of the yeah. day or of the, the couple of weeks that this um, went over. And I think it's fascinating, too, because it we, we see the... And I don't want to call it old school, but we see how every time Gail, not to jump ahead, had to do a phone call, they were tapping her lines just to see maybe this person is the actual kidnapper. Like, so it went back to the... The modern day technology back in those days of how they actually tried to snuff out these these kidnappers, and I think it was um, very authentic to the story. Yeah, and I, I really enjoyed that side of it. I think that stuff to me is very fascinating because um, we, you and I, have seen a lot of sci-fi, and I think they just oversimplify it. I, I like the actual for lack of a better term, detective work behind all of it. Yeah. Uh, I know you're a big fan of Sherlock and so forth, so that's where your love for that stems from. Mm-hmm. I don't know where mine stems from, maybe Scooby-Doo, but nonetheless. I love Scooby-Doo too. Um, yeah, there's just that fa- where you have to less rely. I mean, part of it's, yes, you have the tools available to you, but it's more so your mind interpreting what's at play Yeah, and being able to figure that out. Yeah, and I mean, be for the characters in this film, we'll get to them. But the people that were involved and in how Gail got the information from like side sources and um, like who who does she trust? And you saw some moments where Gail was like, "No, like I, I don't trust you. I'm going to do this this way." Um, I think it's interesting because when you have so many imposters, who do you trust? And one of the things. So let's let's start the go a little bit closer with it um as far as everything's concerned um what was interesting to me that overall we can say that there's three main characters and um yes there's uh chris Plummer who plays the 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 kidnappy um 
I call him the MacGuffin. I think he's a wonderful character, but ultimately he's a MacGuffin. Oh, you mean Charlie Plummer? Charlie, yes. We have Christopher Plummer, Charlie Plummer, and they're not related. (laughs) Yes. Very confusing, yes. Yes, that's where it definitely gets confusing. Um, But for me, the three main characters are Christopher Plummer's character, the original John, Paul Getty. Uh, Then you have Gail, and then Mark Wahlberg's character. Fletcher. Fletcher. And what's interesting to me is they're both sort of going for the same goal, but in completely different ways of going about it. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, Fletcher and John Paul are sort of on the same page, and then they divert. And so when you talk about uh, Gil's, who do I trust, who do I not trust, that's when, when, when Fletcher really starts helping her, it becomes this thing of, wait, how did this shift happen? Right. And it makes sense that it would start with J.P. Getty and Fletcher more so working to find, um, you know, the the younger J.P. Getty, the third, uh, because they are both businessmen. Fletcher does have the experience of how to negotiate in situations like this. Um, maybe not for hostage situations, but he knows how to talk people and to talk to people and talk them down from a bigger situation. Um, so you understand the business aspect and why they paired up first. But when you bring the more humanistic element and actually, hey, these are people, this is a person's life we're dealing with. This isn't business or money or, or numbers. This is a person. That's where, uh, you know, the moral compass comes in with, with Gail. And I like that because it brought a more humanistic element to the story compared to just a cold mogul type of story. Yeah, and I, I think the, the three of them did overall really well. As, as far as, like, Fletcher's concerned, one of the traits to me that was so compelling was the fact that he, everyone kept asking him why he didn't have a gun. He said, listen, when you get to a certain level, you don't need a gun. Mm-hmm. Like the type, of negoti- the type of things he does shouldn't require a gun. Yeah. It's more about smarts than actual, you know, brawn yeah. in, in a way. And that was, that was very interesting to, to hear because, you know, his background was very high up in terms of the FBI and so forth. And that's why he was uh, not a business partner of, of John Paul, but... He worked for him in, in certain business um, negotiations and deals and stuff. And I think Fletcher did actually, uh, and we'll get more into his character, but his his involvement with everything, he did actually a good job of negotiating from starting from $17 million and going down, and we see throughout the movie that the price just keeps going down. I'm like, okay, let's make it a more reasonable price. Instead of from 17, it went down to eventually 1 million. And that's a humongous negotiation. Well, what it ended up being to me, and I think this is true in a lot of negotiations, probably old school, maybe less new school, it, it just becomes a war of attrition. Because hmm. eventually, part. It wasn't so much that uh, the the kidnappers were f- wanted the one million dollars. It just became such a hassle at that point that we're like, "Fuck it, we'll take it. <laughs> yeah, we'll take the one million. We just want to be done with this shit." Yeah, I mean, and they kept passing off the J.P. Getty the, the third off to more people. It's just like, all right, now he's your problem. You deal with this whole situation. Yeah. So it it just made me think, like, what was. This? What was the point in all of this when you started at 17 just to be at the end of the day, you don't want to deal with it anymore? Well, it, it was kind of like all for naught. Well, that's what, that's where the war of attrition comes in because they thought this was going to be a lot easier. It was like, okay, we kidnap him. 
great, we're going to do this, we're going to get the money and be done with this in a matter of days, not, wait, we're still into this, we're, we're, we're holed up in this trash place, Yeah. Uh, where's my life going type of situation. Yeah, yeah. I think they did a, a good job of, and, and that was also just a very tactical move of just trying to keep J.P. Getty III alive. Like, let, let's keep wrangling them, or, um, or what they, they call haggling in, in that sense. Let's keep haggling just so he can live. They're not going to kill him if we keep negotiating. Yeah. Well, that was, um, I guess now's as good a time as any to talk about the year. Because they didn't kill him, oh, but ooh. it was either going to be a foot, a finger, or an ear. Yeah, that year. That was it was painful to watch, but I I've seen so many medical shows that I'm actually as terrible as it sounds. I'm I'm pretty used to it. Painful to watch. I was I was in the theater watching everybody else, and people were covering their eyes. I was like, oh, all right, nasty, terrible. I feel bad for the third. You know, JP yeah. the third. Oof. And I mean, as gruesome as it sounds, I appreciated that they actually took the time to put that on camera. Simply because, as far as history goes, that that was a big turning point. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was certainly part of the marketing, but I think that's because the movie did it. Um, and you know, you could it, it, part of it's just the frustration as we're talking about of the kidnappers of okay, like enough's enough. You guys think you guys can mess with us and get us lower? We're going to take action. Yeah. If you keep messing with us, we're going to take more appendages from him. And uh, it, it sent that message is like, hey, they're serious. They're actually disfiguring him. And it will eventually get to the point where they're just going to kill him and they're going to be tired of all this. And um, it, it was gruesome to watch. It was a big turning point in the movie because that's when Fletcher was like, oh, actually. And, and I think that's the point where his character actually turns. He's like, no, I just have to save this guy. It's not for money. It's not business. This is a human life. Yeah, and uh, I like the kidnapper, um, the friend, right? I'll call him the friend. Yeah, Cinquanta. This was a turning point for him, too, because he was becoming an ally, and then he knew he had to play along at that point. And so when he comes in, he, I, just the first line, I don't know if it's exactly the first line, but he's a good doctor. The fact he was trying to reassure him, mm-hmm. like, listen, I, this is going to suck. But he's capable of doing it, so just shut up and just go with it, and you'll at least live. Oh, man. And and I just felt bad for Cinquanta because he was stuck between a rock and a hard place. And um, even Roman Duras, the actor himself, says, you know, I think he's a good person who's doing the wrong job. I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'm just thinking, how the <laughs> heck did he even get involved in this whole affair with all these guys? And... Um, but I liked him because he he was our inform he was in our, our informant essentially for for Gail, and the the more that he gave us, the more um, a reassurance that hey, John Paul Getty the third is good. You know he he's still alive. It's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk more about Gail specifically because I think we'd be remiss not to for a variety of reasons, but. Story-wise, certainly. Um, You know, we talk about strong women characters often. And, you know, she really doesn't have control 
of the situation whatsoever, and yet she maintains her stability, her forthright and, and passion towards her goal, which is to save her kid. Yeah. And she's surrounded by, uh, certainly initially, just asshole men. Yeah. Certainly the yeah. husband. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I felt for Gail, and, and I liked how they quickly established that her character was married into the family, really had no emotional connections to John Paul Getty, and she was only there because of just the marriage, not out of love or... Um, it was more so out of obligation. And uh, so when this all happened and she knew she had to turn to John Paul, even though she's not really connected with him, uh, she was in it for herself. Yeah, it would help to if John Paul would actually pay. But you, you knew she was fighting for this battle alone. And the interactions that she did have with him, just so brutal, right? He stays true to his negotiation tactics. And when you talk about war of attrition, he had such a long play um, where they make the deal initially. And then essentially by the end, she has to renegotiate and he gets everything he wanted back Mm -hmm. just so, you know, she could get the small crumb that she wanted. Yeah. And it was smart of how she, I don't want to say go rogue, but... Again, she was fighting by herself, so she had to do things on her own. And she had to talk to people on the side on her own. And I think it it was very well played because she was so... I mean, I think that's what any mother should do when your son is kidnapped. And uh, and Michelle Williams is just a freaking phenomenal actress. She, She can play that soft... And invulnerable side, but also be strong at the same time. Yeah, very, very fantastic job. Um, what other story elements um, did you gravitate towards? It was, I think it was interesting of the the deadbeat father with yes. with Gail, and um, you you can understand why Gail really did not want to be part of this Getty family. Um, uh, but the the father, I thought he was going to play a bigger role, but it turns out he just ended up being deadbeat. Well, he does play a large enough role overall, because certainly more than I thought, because the fact that John Paul Getty has a relationship beyond initially, he writes to him and says, "Hey, Dad, I need a job." He gets a job. And then the divorce and such happens. And when I talk about the second negotiation with, with Gail and, and them, mm-hmm. he obviously plays a large part in that. And so not the most screen time, but certainly a huge impact with the screen time he did have. Right, that's true. But also he, he was just being a jerk about it. It's like, yes, let's get our son back. But... If I'm going to help, I get full custody. I'm like, come on. That's that's what you're thinking about right now. Just be focused on getting your son back. Now who gets to spend more time with him once he's back? Um, it, it just showed up that like he was just a jerk. And and it also, I did like the, the backstory history between the father and John Paul because it showed a, a humanistic side of John Paul that he does have somewhat of a twisted connection to his kids. And, and just to his family that, like, on some level he actually cares. And uh, 
And it just gave the audience hope that, hey, maybe on some level he'll actually care about his grandkids by extension. Well, the interesting part is he cared a lot. He really did. The whole idea of his wealth is tied into this trust, which is owned by the family Mm -hmm. and will be. And so he has a very strange way of showing it. Yeah, a twisted way of showing it, yes. Because... Ultimately, that to me was the irony, was that what he wanted most was a family because that's who he was giving everything to. Mm -hmm. And, but, yeah, he just, he needs to read a book because he didn't go about it the right way. (laughs) Very true. Very true. But as far as loving the grandkids, I mean, I think they did a good job of establishing that early on that, hey, he at least liked... um, he at least liked his grandkids, yeah, and wanted them to do well and sort of carry on the legacy. Uh, very interesting. Um, not ex- so. Let's talk about it. Not explicitly stated, but he gets the statue, right? He, mm-hmm. he he gives it away as a gift to his grandson. Tells him the value, which is completely false. What's the lesson? Well, I think the lesson was, and I think just how they established it was. Um, he cares about his grandkids, and but get to the level where you can give away gifts doesn't depend on money. That like items and memories have are priceless, mm-hmm. in, in, essentially. But also, he lied at the same time. When we find out near the end, there it was just a trinket. But it, it, I think it establishes the fact that yeah, I can give you something that can give you happiness, but happiness is also priceless. And I was thinking a lot of it had to do with perception, especially when it came because the whole collection was art. So I think he taught him, yes, it was a lie, but I think part of that is just perception. Like if he ever goes to sell that art, hey, this is a one of a kind, Van Gogh. Mm-hmm. Uh, perceived value, actual value might be twenty bucks worth of paint, but we're gonna sell it for fifty-seven million. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever it is. Yeah. And so it's just being able to how to negotiate a deal worth of you know, basically just selling useless junk. Yeah. And I think it was also just a slight foreshadowing of, hey, if he has just one statue that's like a hand-sized statue that's worth one point whatever million, how many other things that are so much bigger are worth probably more that he actually has stored away? Which we find out at the end. I'm like, all right, that it, it was a good tie into the end. Absolutely. And by the way, I didn't mean to call art crap, but <laughs> you get my you yeah, get yeah. my idea. Um, anyway, all right. Uh, so I guess let's let's sort of talk about how they finally the, the sort of murder mystery of it all, even though murder doesn't actually take place. Uh, I thought overall pretty suspenseful when they're finally all coming in and they know the location yeah they got to get him and he's just the the grandson is just riding out in the streets and i thought that was very fascinating because we've seen the other characters for so long and then when he you know when fletcher sees him and he's like get away from me dude (laughs) and yeah it was a nice moment of like oh yeah he doesn't know you (laughs) he doesn't know him um i think it was really good very beautifully well shot and we'll get into production later but i i think this 
helped build with just the editing and the pacing when everyone finally meets in the same location. Uh, it because it was like a cat and mouse type of game within this, and who knows who who trusts who, and it once once they finally met up and Fletcher finally fi- finds the son, it's like everyone had that sigh of relief, like okay, he's he's good, and we we found him now. Run. <laughs> Uh, I, I liked it. I think it was just... It was a great scene. Um, not really action, but very suspenseful. Yeah, they played it a lot slower, which I thought worked very well. It mm-hmm. reminded me of Zero Dark Thirty. Just, yeah. just very methodical. Mm-hmm. Um, the action is really in the inaction of just trying to figure out everything, what's what, uh, the location, the people, as you said, and all that. Yes, let's storm the location. Let's get out. And the embrace... When finally uh, the grandson and Gail see each other, mm-hmm. that was just... I'm surprised more people didn't get up and just clap. Uh, oh, I think I might have, if I remember. I was like, oh, finally she sees him. Uh, I, I think it was a well-earned moment because she, Gail's been looking for him the whole time. And when, when you see a mother reunite with a kidnapped son, it's a great happy moment. And to that point, for as far as the grandson's concerned he the fact that he survived is is a huge testament because mm-hmm. in, in some sense you could look at like oh spoiled rich kid type of mentality but he wasn't uh, and i think you know anyone to survive in that scenario is a strong person right and you you knew that the john paul getty the third was had his wits too um, starting the fire to try to es- escape, I thought that was really smart. Yeah, and he used point. he used his own resources to start the fire, and um, so so you knew on some level that he had intelligence of survival. And I, I thought that was cool. It's like okay, the the reason why he survived is like he also was looking out for himself, and uh, I, I liked it because it, after the the whole starting the fire and running away, even though he got caught. <laughs> and back into their hands I, I thought that was very intelligent and I wasn't expecting it because I didn't know a lot about Getty the Third. I didn't know he was innovative and resourceful yeah he did a good he did a good job overall alright well story wise I think we touched on most of it I, I mean I'm sure we'll t- hit other touch points as we talk about other stuff but um, is there anything that you're dying to talk about story wise before we move on to the rest of the aspects of the movie. Uh, No, I think we covered it. All right. Well, as always, we encourage you fans as well, if there's something that you felt we needed to go a little bit deeper on or we didn't touch upon, write in the comments section. We'll read it. We'll respond. All that fun stuff. The conversation Mm -hmm. begins with us, but it does not end with us. There is the difference. (laughs) All right. Where to begin? So much to talk about. I guess the... Well, let's start with uh, let's start with overall production. Uh, yes, all the money in the world began its original production back in May thirty first of twenty seventeen. Principal photography had begun; they were shooting it, and all in all, Kevin Spacey's role took about ten days to film. Yeah, now that's not the whole movie, but um, his role took ten days, and then obviously the the other stuff. And Ridley Scott is just. I mean, that's a very fast turnaround. That's a crazy turnaround because if you remember, 
Alien Covenant only came out like one May. <laughs> that month or like one month before that. So he's a busy guy. Uh, I, I think it's brilliant. And the locations that they got for the shot were fantastic to look. I love the color palette of everything. We had the, the bright golden rich hues of Getty's mansion Especially, there was a moment not to jump ahead, but like at the end of the film where he's next to the fire, you just there had that luxurious look of his life that he's so rich. This is what his mansion looks like. Um, it was gorgeous. I love the color palette for everybody. And when we saw Gail in her house, it was more bluish, more saturated, um, darker kind of because she's not as rich. Um, you can definitely see the different locations that really added to the characters. Yeah. A uh, quick side note, I did appreciate that when he's dying, the way he tells everybody that he's dying is he basically steals his artwork to set off the alarm, mm-hmm. which was smart. Talk <laughs> about ingenuity. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, and as it, Kevin Spacey, they originally wanted him, they, they cast him, but a lot of prosthetics. Uh, Getty at the time was about 80 when this happened. And uh, Kevin Spacey's only 56, so a huge difference in age. I mean, that's almost, well, that's 24 years, yeah. almost 25. So that's, that's and especially when you get towards that side of things, no offense, it's a huge gap. It's, it's not like, you know, the difference between 20 and even 50. Right. And the only time I knew really about the promotion for this film was when I saw the trailer that had the original cut trailer that had Kevin Spacey in it because it was a big reveal. They, they only saw, like, back or side shots of, of Getty and then literally the last seconds of the trailer is, like, and Kevin Spacey as John Paul Getty. And you see the reveal of his face and you're like, oh, prosthetics upon prosthetics. It's actually distracting. It is. It didn't look right. No, it's just, like, if you're going to play an 80-year-old character... Get an eighty-year-old character actor. There are so many good ones out there. Yeah, and and as far as Christopher Plummer, I mean, it's it's not like he's just a, he's not new to the game. No, he's <laughs> a sound, veteran actor. Sound of Music being like Obviously. a classic, classic movie among his other works. accolades. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and and I think that's also what we have issues with just casting in general. Sometimes they just cast people for business or um, for a name to get butts in the seats compared to this is an opportunity for someone who actually has the talent to play this character. Yeah, and so I don't know. I don't want to go too far into it and give all the details. You guys can read about it in the various trade papers um, at this point, but Kevin mm-hmm. Spacey, and you know, unfortunately accused as part of this the whole me too movement and so forth um and so unanimously they vote we got to reshoot this guy yeah we gotta take him out of the movie and we got to reshoot him which unprecedented in the history of i mean it, it, it's happened before it's where happened. they've taken out actors but in that fast amount of time when when their deadline is they get they got to release this movie in a couple weeks you got to promote the movie, too, right. <laughs> and redo 
everything shots re-edit re-sound everything like uh, to a techno they were refilming on thanksgiving which was only a month and a half ago can you believe that so uh, i think it's just crazy that and and amazing i mean pff, kudos to ridley um that they were able to pull it off and ridley had the wherewithal that very day um that the allegations came out against kevin spacey ridley was like crap i cannot have him in our film he and he he got on the on the ball fast and that very night he had a meeting with uh with christopher Plummer, and christopher Plummer was on was on board but also people may not know that patty jenkins was actually helped in the uh involvement with recasting hmm. she because because the, the, it's the director of wonder woman yes yeah, so the wonder woman but because of you know how fast news travels especially um after this had the information gotten out that they were recasting kevin spacey it would have killed the film already just the information alone so it was very secretive patty jenkins got involved with the casting and she sent out like a very vague description looking for an 80 year old actor Mm -hmm. and then that's how christopher Plummer got involved and then that night they had their meeting and christopher Plummer was now recasted well ridley scott always he says now he always wanted christopher Plummer, although there's the truth is a little skewed because he said like kevin spacey's perfect for the role at the time that kevin spacey was Mm -hmm. the role now you know, um, it's a little bit of hindsight and, and whatnot. Um, but yeah, they, they, just the, for me, the gumption and confidence to say, I can do it. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, I get it. It's the right thing to do, maybe. Or you kind of realize we're screwed if we put this movie out with Kevin Spacey. But to not hit any sort of panic button, <laughs> that's a whole different story. Well, they talk about redlining and just rolling up your sleeves. He did it. I mean, good Lord, and the guy's 80. That's just an amazing feat in and of itself. But um, also, with the whole recasting, Ridley Scott also had to call all of his locations and see if they were still available to go back to the exact locations and reshoot, too. And fortunately enough, most of them, if not all, except the, the scene in the desert scene in the Jordan um, they couldn't get that so the, location. That's Kevin so, Spacey in yes, the movie. Yes, Kevin Spacey. Um, and you can clearly see that was a green shot, a green screenshot when <laughs> that was the real of John Paul, which is fine. It's distracting. I noticed it. But that was, the, I believe, the only one of the only locations that they couldn't get. But everywhere else, they they managed to get the original places. Yeah, and when you talk about redlining, it's not just Ridley redlining. Uh, this thing literally went from shoot, and then the edit bay right at like just seconds mm-hmm. to having it done that night. Great shoot, edit, but 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 all right. And by the time the, they film everything, all right, you're ninety percent there. Now, the interesting part is, yes, they're sort of. They didn't show Christopher Plummer any of what was there. They wanted him to take the role and let it be his role. Mm-hmm. So. You're affecting pacing at this point because it's not like, okay, great, Kevin Spacey did in two, this scene in two minutes, so we're going to shoot this for two minutes and we're going to just place it right in and everything fits. You have to retime music. Mm-hmm. You have to, the, the whole movie changes. Yeah, and just the whole character changes too because actors have their own personal, personality traits and quotes. And, uh, and, and I, I think it was really smart because 
uh, I believe Ridley Scott said that Christopher Plummer was more of a sympathetic type uh, and cruel sometimes as a character, where Kevin Spacey was more colder and more um, emotionless, more stoic. And we're used to Kevin Spacey with his Ron Underwood character. That is kind of... So I think we, we probably would have had a hard distinction between Ron Underwood and J, um, John Paul Getty. Uh, but Christopher Plummer had his own personal take on it and, and, and really liked it. Well, when you talk about the effects of all of that, uh, it's not just affecting that character in those scenes because Michelle Williams and Mark Wahlberg are for the most part I mean there's other actors too but they have to now change their performance based on how they're reacting to him mm-hmm. you know because if if I, if I said if the line was get out and I said get out you react differently than I say get out right, right? Exactly. Just, just based on that and so that changed their performance and the fact that um, I mean, I'd have to really rewatch, but but you know the scenes where they didn't have to reshoot the fact that they emotionally still track for for Gail in particular and Fletcher, and it works mm-hmm. is a huge testament to a lot of things. Yeah, and I mean, it kudos to all the actors coming back, despite if some were um, begrudgingly so, and we'll get into that too. But I, I think it's great because this it didn't. Fortunately, it didn't change the story. It just changed how we reacted to the story. And I, I think it was really smart. And fortunately, they did have the the time and the locations to naturally get back into their physical characters. Um, I, I, I like that. Also, with the refilming, because they, they knew they didn't have time to do ADR, while they were actually filming in locations, they had to get better mics and um, better actual sound mixers on sets. So they had the perfect, clearest audio just in the reshoots, so they would put that in the actual film. Mm. There was no time for sound editing. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I was like, what? They had to get better mics. And, you know, that's always scary. The amount of ADR that actually goes into a movie is insane. It's ridiculous. People don't know how much. Like they, they just basically might as well just shoot audio on like a shitty camera, um, and w- with like the engine going off in the background because it's yeah, production audio is the worst. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it is. Uh, and then the great thing about production, it's more for the visual aspects, and you know you can fix it in post. And <laughs> that's what the the line is: fix it in post. Yeah, but ADR is always, like it's a separate art of its own it is because you're acting to yourself to mimic the same voice that you had but just for the purpose of getting it cleaner and then as far as sound editing since we're on it then you take that very clean audio and now you got to put it into a desert and make it sound like it's in a desert (coughs) or wherever without foley artists yeah yeah so they had to get natural the best highest quality sound during the reshoots and I think that's also an amazing testament to to them. Yeah, because people um, people don't realize how much sound actually goes into it. And by the way, right. when you talk about it's a, it's a good point about foley because it's one thing if you strip away the sound and you have your voice or my voice, you still got to have the movement of the shirt, let's mm-hmm. say. And that's just like 
you like wait just the movement of the shirt yeah you got a movement of the shirt and then if i'm doing this yeah gesticulating everything i gesticulate a lot i know and also people walk differently people have different walking paces Uh, some people stomp some people shuffle Uh, it's a lot that people don't think when it comes to a person's um, performance and the sound that they can create yeah it's so much it's a lot it's so much um yeah, to me, I was just I I was just really fascinated, and I and I don't think we'll ever get it, and I think it would be ultimately in poor taste to do it. But there is a curiosity side to me of I would just love to see the Kevin Spacey cut. I know it's I know I, it's not right. I get it. I get it. But but you're a, curious. I mean, yeah, it's unfortunate. Some of my favorite movies have Kevin Spacey in it. One of my all-time favorite movies has Kevin Spacey in it, and it's one of his best acting roles, I think, to date. And it's just really unfortunate that that can all be immediately tainted within 24 hours. And But I, I st- that doesn't change the fact that he's still talented and he's still an amazing actor, and he's done amazing crap in his life. Well, I, I would. here's how I would take it a step further. Um whether American, um, uh, I was going to say American graffiti, but uh, American beauty, American beauty, yeah, or or whatever, pay listen, for it, pay for it. Listen, at the end of the day, it's not just Kevin Spacey's movie, right? Mm-hmm. That that movie in particular, uh, a lot of great actors, great director, great screenwriter, a lot of people worked on that movie. So I get it. You don't want to support him. That's fine, but don't. Sh- Support the other people. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way I try to look at it um, in terms of that regard. Right. Support the art and the hard work and effort that went into it. Now, as far as this is concerned, I'm glad they reacted the way they did and and put their foot down. Because unlike American Graffiti, American Graffiti can't go back and fix itself. Yeah. This didn't have to, but did. Um, And then this is where we get into trouble part two. (laughs) <laughs> yes. So we go back to the reshoots. And here's Michelle Williams, uh, already an amazing actress to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're actually going to be talking about another movie, uh, The Greatest Showman, yes. with her in it. So this is a Michelle Williams type of day. But nonetheless, so check that out uh, yeah. right after. But the the point being, you know, her mindset is, I just want to make movies. All right. This is what we got to do. Let's do it. And furthermore, she's ecstatic because she's a woman and, and, okay, all these things are coming out. And, you know, I don't want to – she says to herself, I don't want to stand by this. So absolutely, I'm in to essentially save the movie. Yeah, and I think that just is uh, just shows the character and person she is when she even said – she's like, you can take my money. You can even take my Thanksgiving – because she had plans with her family. She's like, you can take my holiday so long as this saves the film. She was in it for the art. She was in it for the passion of this film. And and that's just the right mentality to have when you are in the trenches of how do we fix something such as big as this. And I, I think she, it was great that she was on board for it. Then you get to the flip side. And this is <clears throat> Wahlberg... For the reshoots, um, he was going to be paid $1.5 million to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, on the other hand, uh, now there's, she got paid about $800 in per diem. Per diem. 
That's. No, I mean, you was, can call it what you want, no, but it's still it eight hundred dollars no, versus. It was yeah. It was like eighty eight hundred in total. It was like less than a thousand compared to Mark Wahlberg's one point five million. Now here's why I'm. You know, I here's why I might get in trouble, and I don't know fully um, what the full story is. Right, we'll we'll never fully know. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I don't know. I'd like to think that Wahlberg. A, maybe didn't know, and B, oftentimes it comes to agents really negotiating this. So um, I think in large part, I don't think Wahlberg necessarily had too much to do with it. I don't know. I don't know. This is just pure speculation. And they kind of negotiated this number. Where the irony falls to me is that the people that are negotiating Wahlberg's payment are the same people that are also negotiating William's payment. Mm -hmm. So why in the hell... You wouldn't negotiate for her to get higher payment. I don't understand. Now, why would I say that? Because the higher she earns, the more you fucking earn. Yeah, it's true. It's so be great. Like, listen, don't you don't have to be altruistic. You don't have to be a feminist. Be greedy. Earn yourself more fucking money. Yeah, but that's also the thing. They shouldn't have to be greedy. They have all the money in the world. Listen, but also, I, I'm just saying. I'm yes, not going to change people. I get but it. Go with your natural intuition and mode of operation. I get it. If one person is greedy, the other person should be greedy. It's, it sounds terrible, and we, unfortunately, or we're, we're unfortunately not looking like good people right now. But I understand that. But it's also, it's just unfortunate when it's the same people representing the same people and yeah. one gets more than the other. That's wrong. That's just wrong. And, and again, I, but it's, what, I get what you're saying and I agree with it. Mm-hmm. And again, I know it's not the, the right thing, but in that sense, unfortunately, I can't force altruism onto people. But when most people say, hey, would you rather make 10 bucks or... You know, let's say five hundred thousand. Now, just throwing out numbers, you'd say five hundred thousand dollars, right? So it's like, listen, your natural gut is just gonna kick in. You're gonna want more fucking money. Yeah, I don't understand. I don't understand. It's true. It's true. Uh, I think it's just unfortunate that this news even got out, despite the fact that we had Kevin's Spacey's allegations already kind of tainting this film, and they had to fix that. But now, after this film has been now already re you know redone re-edited and released with all the the new changes and then this information gets out after the fact i mean this this movie can't catch a break and i think it's just really unfortunate that that news which is should be actually very private got out for everybody to know well i'm not upset by the fact that it got out um i don't blame ridley scott for it um i doubt he had you know, he's just like, how the hell? all right, I'm so focused on reshooting this and getting my locations and figuring out the rest out. Yeah, he's I, not caring how much his actors <laughs> made. He's he's caring about the artwork of the film. Yeah. Um, so as far as this, I mean, this is where I go to you because this is where I don't quite have an opinion. Um, as far as now Wahlberg giving away what he got in the name of Michelle Williams towards the uh, the Me Too fund. Which is basically a legal um, nonprofit that will help women get equal pay in both this business and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, WME is donating five hundred thousand as well, so for a total of two million. Good, they should. 
um, because they're the ones who did this. Uh, I think, yeah, that's admirable. I don't think he would have done it if this information got out. I think he would have pocketed that money and used it for his other personal resources. But since this information got out, it it's trying to like rebuild his his image and his and his character. I think that was more of a public stunt than um, or publicity PR rebuilding your image than what he actually wanted. Because if if he was just going to give this money away anyways, what's the point of just even rehaggling and renegotiating his salary? if he was just going to give it away at the end. So giving it away and to the place he gave it away, good. But the reason why he gave it away, bad. Fair enough. Um, yeah, this is that's where it's hard for me to have a stance on it. That's where my argument and my thinking just stops and breaks down. Right, and it's really unfortunate. I've never really minded Mark Wahlberg. I think he, he's an okay actor. I never loved him or disliked him in, in that sense. But when this news got out, I'm like... He's not looking like the the greatest guy right now. I think he's much better in comedies, to be honest. Like in this movie, I give him a B. Yeah, I, I I'd give Chris- him a C plus B minus. Christopher Plummer way better. Michelle Williams way phenomenal. Better. Yeah, and you know it's hard for me to say this is Michelle's greatest work, but that's because she's done so much other amazing work and yeah. it's tough to rank that it i mean it is i mean just look at all the accomplishments accomplishments that she has even like this time last year she was in manchester by the sea in december 2016 this movie came out in december last year uh 2017 so like a year ago she was already getting nominated again for for best supporting actress so you know she has the just the acting chops in marathon to the, uh, and recognition for this role. I think she, her character was so much better and so much stronger than Fletcher was only because I think this isn't out of Mark Wahlberg's wheelhouse. He, he's known for be, being the kind of the authoritative person. He always has to stick it to the man when absolutely necessary and makes him look like he's the smartest guy in the room. Um, we've seen that so often. This... And Mark's not going to get nominated for this role because there wasn't really acting. No, and you're right. He does that, but but to that same point, he does it generally in a comedic sense. Like I was waiting for a punchline every time. No uh. offense to him, and it was it was tough because part of it. I always looked at him as Mark Wahlberg, whereas yes, Michelle Williams is very recognizable to me, but never saw her as that. I saw her as Gail. Mark Wahlberg, I saw as Mark, Mark Wahlberg as Fletcher, not Fletcher. Mm-hmm. And there's that distinction, and it's tough to quantify where that line is, but that's what I felt. I yeah. mean, it was tough. Yeah, I think Mark Wahlberg plays the same characters a lot, over the same type of characters over and over again. He's good at it. That's why he keeps doing it. I think literally stick to comedies. Um, he was great in The Departed, but he had a comedic role in The Departed. Yeah. Um, I thought he, you know, the other guys and even even uh, Daddy's Home, that, that series, I think that, that that's that's his wheelhouse. Ted. Ted. <laughs> yeah, Ted. A good right. example. Absolutely. I mean, but also I think one of the, the better dramatic roles that Wahlberg has had was The Fighter. Yes. Not to crap on your point, he benefited from amazing actors around he him. He did. 
that elevated him. I mean, what Christian Bale did, what Amy Adams did. Uh, what was the mother's name, her real name? Oh, I'm completely forgetting because I'm only thinking of the actor. That sounds terrible. I keep thinking Melissa Leo because she was the actor. Yes, Melissa. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yes, Melissa Leo. Yeah. Um, the actor's real name, not. Uh, oh yeah, no, yeah. Not the mom. Uh, she did. You know, so Amazing. like, th- think of all those people when, when you're like constantly acting around those people. Think of how high you have to get elevated to do so. That's very true. That's very true. So you know, he benefited greatly. No, I'm not saying he didn't do a good job in that movie. I'm just saying I think. I think like he was forced to be on the level of everybody else. And plus, like, if he wasn't. You know, if he wasn't necessarily the best, like, it, it just kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Mm-hmm. And his role was a little bit more physical in that role. Yeah. Because he was, you know, he, he was, was the an boxer. actual fighter. Yeah. So yeah. it's a little bit, you know. Uh, anyway, I don't mean to say he's a bad actor. I'm just saying. No, no, no. We we'll, we'll just know. <laughs> um, he, he, he has some good roles. He has better roles. Yeah. So. And uh, so anyway... All right, um, let's talk about uh, let's talk about the editing and the production side of things. I guess the the sound and the music. Um, well, I guess we, we we did talk about the sound effects. As far as when it comes specifically to music, um, what was interesting to me was I thought it worked, but it wasn't necessarily the most memorable soundtrack. No, but it was suspenseful. I remember it being suspenseful, and, and I, I say that. Often I feel like, but to that notion, I don't need my soundtracks to be memorable. I need them to work for the movie, and I thought the movie worked really well, and so therefore the sound worked. Just right. like editing supposed to disappear into the background, not be in your face. Right, and I mean, and there are some movies where the soundtrack is fantastic, and we'll talk about that soon. Uh, I, I think the the moment where I definitely remembered it was the whole. When they're finally all at the end, and they're trying to get John Paul Getty the third, and everyone finally meets, and um, they're they're running around the street because there there wasn't really a, a lot of dialogue. It was more this is the chase game. Yeah. Um, that's where it, it really hit. And when they cut off his ear, who painful to watch, painful to listen to. Yes, they had a lot of. That was a combination of visual, sound, and music. So, absolutely. Let's talk promotion because uh, very interesting, right? Um, you a lot of a lot of promotion based on the severed ear, and in fact, that's our background image today. Mm-hmm. I think it's a decent choice in the context of if if you're the head of marketing and get told like, "Hey, all the marketing has to be pulled, the trailers have to be pulled, we have to redo it with Chris Plummer." Um, and by the way, you can't. St- we're filming that, so it's not like you can like create it. <laughs> right. You need the actual images. Yeah. So it's like, okay, what do we go with? Well, what do most people remember about that story if they remember it? Because granted, the, you're not marketing this to millennials. You're marketing it to a more sophisticated crowd, ergo older as well. Yeah. People who have probably lived through this, and so you show them the ear. It's like, we don't need anybody for this. Mm-hmm. We only know about the ear. But also, for the promotions, um, I was reading a little bit about this as well, is that because they had such a short turnaround for just promotional aspects, they had to use different pictures for their posters. Now, when you actually you know Google search images and um, poster images, you see only Mark Wahlberg and Michelle Williams. You see statues, not of Kevin Spacey, 
um, you see like objects and the other people that were in this film besides Kevin Spacey. You had to show something else other than the main main character, which is unfortunate. Um, and then they, finally, but that's what they had to work with. Then they finally, towards the end, because I remember before the movie actually came out, they finally were able to get a poster with all three and in big letters, Christopher Plummer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, I thought that worked really well, and I really liked that poster, and I saw it a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, very, very, uh, you know, they made it work, and. Uh, when you talk like this movie was always going to be an Oscar contender, it was always going to be in contention for Golden Globes. Like that was their plan. Now whether or not it wins, whether or not so forth, um, you know, as awards season goes on, remains to be seen. But nonetheless, now not only have to change that, you have to change your marketing campaign towards the award shows. Yeah, and but that also affects um, the technical award nominations that you could get like sound editing sound writing or like sound mixing um even acting because if you wanted kevin spacey up for an academy award now it has to be christopher Plummer, and it changes a a lot of aspects of this film just about everything changed the story changed or the story remained the same but everything else changed around it yeah for for a long time i thought he was gonna be in the movie for like 10 minutes now He's not the main main character, but he's in the movie quite a lot. And yes. he is getting a lot of recognition. For 10 days worth of work, he's getting mm-hmm. a lot of recognition. And uh, good for him. I, I hope he gets something down the line. Oh, yeah. Definitely a nomination, at least. J- or just for... And I, I don't think it was over the top, like, oh, my God, that's the best role I've ever seen Christopher Plummer do. But I think just what they had accomplished in such short amount of time needs some recognition of some sense yeah and even even without that short amount of time i thought he did an amazing job he really did and by the way if you want to see more christopher Plummer, check out um, the man who invented christmas yes he's in that as ebenezer scrooge and right. quite I, I thought it uh quite a good movie he was excellent in that film. and also just good timing for christopher Plummer too to have now two movies out in theaters at the same time like man Michelle is Williams. 88 years old. 88! I mean, he's amazing. That would be a nice culmination to his work of if he was able to get some... And I'm not saying it has to be even a SAG war, and I'm not saying it has to be an Oscar, but there's plenty of acting accolades mm-hmm. that he could still get. Yeah, agreed. So, um, I'm all for it. And uh, also Michelle Williams. I want her to to get some recognition. Obviously, she was nominated for a Golden Globe, so uh, we're kind of skipping around, but Golden Globes is in our history. Yes. In our future are the SAGs, are the Oscars, Oscars. and all the other technical um, award shows and so forth, but um, nominated were Ridley Scott, Christopher Plummer, and Michelle Williams. And, and I'm glad that they did. And you see how Mark Wahlberg's not on that? Because he doesn't deserve to be there. There's just so many other better supporting exactly. characters. Um, so, anywho, as far unfortunately as- they didn't win, but they're already in lines for in, and in talks for SAG and Academy Awards. Yeah. It places them in a good position. It does indeed. Um, as far as the box office is concerned, right now uh, worldwide they've made about thirty-six million um, against a budget of fifty million. Um, for a movie like this, that's a Listen, it's, 
award season movies have longevity. Mm-hmm. There's not not going to be a lot of things coming out, and so I'm sure that number will continue to grow as things go by and as momentum picks up for it, and be like, oh, I got to check out this Oscar contender. I got to check out this. Right, and this is fortunately, uh, you know, back in the '70s, so it is now a timeless story, and you can watch this any time of the year. Is it rewatchable though? I don't know. I don't know compared to other Academy Award winning pictures that are rewatchable. I'm not sure if this one is. Well, that 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 begs the debate of what's how do you define rewatchability? There's a lot of movies that it, it, it's kind of that weird irony. The greatest movies aren't the ones you generally go back to. Right. You see them once and you're like, that was amazing, but... Never again. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that way. Like The Artist. And that one, oh, right? Oh, yeah, that one. I don't think I'll ever see The Artist again. I liked The Artist. The Artist was good. I've only seen it once, though. I, I agree with that. Revenant. I've been lucky enough to see The Revenant twice. Not a movie mm-hmm. that I probably would have if I wasn't like, hey... Come watch this for right. myself. Schindler's List. Yeah, I mean, we could keep going. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, we digress. Overall, Rotten Tomatoes uh, right now, a score of 77% against 171 reviews. As it reads, All the Money in the World offers an absorbing portrayal of a true story brought compellingly to life by a powerful performance from Christopher Plummer. Um, oh, it's got a cinema score of B, so not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah, and... I like I did generally enjoy this film because I learned a lot from it and and just the story. And I I've said it in multiple anatomy shows that I like movies that tell me a story that I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, more people should. I really I'm, I'm I am actually very fascinated by the Getty history and I I want to learn more. Um I don't know too truth too too in-depth, truthfully, so um, unfortunately I can't present it Go to the museum. Well, I think that's one aspect of it, certainly. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, I think it's, it's interesting. You kind of learn that way of what he was interested in, but it doesn't fully, like, the, the you know, he was an oil tycoon. It's not like he, that's not, it's, let me put it this way. It's different than going to a Van Gogh museum because mm-hmm. That is his work, and you get to see this is like an extension of him. Yeah, it's uh, John Getty third degree. Yes, so. I I understand that too. It's it's actually a really cool place if you're actually in ever in Los Angeles. Yeah, I say stop by the the Getty Museum. It's it's really cool of the, all the artwork and the sculptures and everything he well not really everything but <coughs> most of his collection. Um, that are now in glass cases. You can just tell his somewhat of his personality and the things that he was interested in and what he thought was beautiful. Um, very interesting. Well, there you go. Any final thoughts before we wrap this up? Um, I hope more people see this film because I think, unfortunately, it's one of those films that so much work was has been put into it and not a lot of people will see it. And I think more people should see it. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would encourage people to see it. I think it's it's a you know slice of life, a horrific slice of life, yeah. slice of a near, yeah, as well. Uh, but nonetheless, I think you know that history and that side of things exist in our world, and and I don't mind escapist movies or art, but I also don't shy away from from stories such as this. 
Yeah. That's all I'll have to say on that. Anywho, that's all we got for you today. Coming up, uh, Anatomy News, we'll be doing Greatest Showman. We'll do Molly's Game next week. We'll do, uh, and for a little bit more lighthearted fun, we'll do Paddington 2. Yes. And we'll continue to, as we go through this, do a mix of more fun movies, let's say, versus the Oscar contenders. And by the time the Oscars come, we'll, we'll ideally, hopefully, fingers crossed, get through every single movie mm-hmm. that uh, is on that list. So, anyway, keep checking back in. Uh, also, we encourage you guys to go through our library. We've covered a lot of movies. A lot. <laughs> They're all there for you to browse through. So, if, uh, you know, if years from now you see a movie, whether it be, I don't know, <laughs> Star Wars The Last Jedi, come back, check us out. There we go. And we've, we've covered a lot of Wahlberg movies, a lot of Michelle Williams movies. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, check Ridley's that. movies. Yes. There's a lot. We covered Alien Covenant, yes. Yeah, we have. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you guys as always at Serafini TV. That's right. Um, at DMovies1701 for Dimitri, who is not here, but hey, he will happily tweet back at you. <laughs> yes. And also, I'm at Phil Svitek, and of course, at the Popcorn Talk here. And uh, if you want, uh, for a little bit of support, follow at, mo- at an- Movie Anatomy. Yes. At Movie Anatomy, yes. So, until next time, bye, guys, keep watching movies. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.